We'll be in Revelation chapter 4 this morning. We will be taking a look at the entire chapter. It's only 11 verses long. Don't worry. We won't be here till, you know, 2 o'clock or anything like that. All right, Revelation chapter 4. Last week we finished up the seven churches. And this morning as we pick up and we begin in chapter 4, I'm going to start right off and read the first verse if you'd follow along with me. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. After these things. This is the third major division in the book of Revelation. If you remember, you were here back in Revelation chapter 1. In verse 19, we read, uh, Jesus was speaking to the apostle John, who was on the island of Patmos, and he gave him the outline for the book. He said, write the things which you have seen, write the things which are, and write the things which will take place after this. So the book of Revelation is essentially divided into three parts. The things which John saw, that was recorded in chapter 1 for us, and most importantly, it was the risen and glorified Savior, Jesus Christ. He describes him vividly in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we, we read, or chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, the things which are currently taking place on, the time, on, on earth as this is being given to John. Chapters 2 and 3 were letters to the seven different churches. And when we studied those letters, we took a look and we saw that those letters were for specific churches, for specific problems in those churches. But we also saw those letters can be written for us too. Because they can affect our lives and they can influence our lives. Because the same things that those churches were tempted and pulled away from the Lord by are the very same things that we can be tempted or we can be pulled away. We have to guard against those things and they get, they're given to us for a warning. But we also said, and we also showed, how those seven churches represent a period of church history, beginning with the apostolic church, going all the way through the formation of the Catholic church, the Protestant Reformation, to the final two churches, which were the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. So when we come to chapter 4, we read, after these things. The Greek, there, the Greek word there is metatautos. And it means the same thing in verse, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, after these things. After these things. We have to ask the question, after what things? What are you talking about, John? After what things? What you, you said after these things, after what things? Well, what did he just refer to? Before we go any further, I want you to kind of understand. I want to keep an overhead view of this book of Revelation. We're going, to keep an, we're going to be like flying overhead looking down on it. There's a lot of things that we could study really, really carefully and very, very specifically and spend days studying, and Bible scholars have done that. But in order to keep things in context, I want to keep the overview in, in position. Because before you study something in detail, you have to have the overview perspective. If not, your details will, met, will lead you astray. We have to know what's being said over the, over the, the, the big picture, if you will. So when John says, after these things, we can go after what things? Well, the things he just talked about. The things he just talked about were the seven churches. It's representing of the church age. After these things, he says. After what things? Listen, after the Lord has finished his work through the church. That's what he's talking about. This is the last time in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, was the last time you will see the word church mentioned in the book of Revelation. 
never, you're not going to see it again. You'll see saints, you'll see brethren, you'll see children of Israel, but you will not see the church. And after every letter, he, Jesus said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The chapters 2 and 3 are written to the churches. Now we move on. Jesus, after these things, after he's finished his work with the churches, and by the way, just as another side note, the Lord has told four of the seven churches that he's coming back. I'm coming back for you, he said. We studied them individually. I'm coming back for you. So here's the way it works. These seven churches... After these things, after I'm done with my work in these seven churches, John is now going to represent for us a picture of the church. And look what he says. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. In heaven. After these things, John is here. He's on the earth. He looks up to heaven. We're told he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he sees a door open to heaven. Isn't that what we're all waiting for? As a Christian, isn't that what you desire? I want to go to heaven. I, 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 this body, this world, these problems, these issues, I just want to go but be before my Lord. If you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's your desire. Sometimes we even come to Christ just so we can go to heaven because we don't want to go to hell. What are my choices, heaven or hell? All right, I'll take heaven. But this is it. John says, I'm there. I see the door opened. I see the door open, and he goes on. Well, before we go there, should we find it surprising the door to heaven is open? Didn't Jesus tell us? Didn't he say, I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So John here is looking up in the sky. He sees the door open to heaven. And it's worth noting here, the Bible talks about three different kinds of heavens. Three different kinds of heavens you can find them in the scripture. The first heaven is the terrestrial heaven. It's the, it's the, it's the atmosphere. It's the sky. It's, the, it's where the clouds are. It's just the basic sky. As you look up, it's where the birds fly. It's just the terrestrial heaven. The second heaven is, the, is known as the celestial heaven. It's, it's where the stars and the sun and the moon, it's, it's the outer space. It's, it's where, it's where the, you know, our galaxy is and the galaxies beyond and wherever, wherever the, the space goes, that, that's, the, that's the celestial heaven. It's, it's what David was remembering when he said in, in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have considered or which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's when David looks at the stars and the skies and says, look at the beauty of the universe. What, what is man? That's the, that's the celestial heaven. But there's a third heaven that Paul refers to. There's another heaven that Paul says, and he refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's the place where God dwells. Paul said, I can't even tell you about it. I can't even, I, I've been there, but, and he even refers to himself in third person. I can't even really tell you about it. So the Bible refers to those three heavens and I want you to notice at this point in the book of Revelation heaven is open can you imagine what that would look like it's not going to be open again until the end of the book right now it's open as John stands before is open the heaven heaven is open and he hears he hears a voice and the first voice he hears which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me what's the voice say says, come up here. John, come up here. 
John, come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And immediately he was in the Spirit. Wait a minute. This is the voice in chapter 1. We read about it. This is where John's describing the voice of Jesus. It's like a trumpet. And now John being on earth, here's the voice that says, come up here. John, come on up here. And I will show you the things which must take place after this. After what? After John gets to heaven. After, after he's taken up into heaven, I'm going to show you what has to take place after this. The voice clearly says, come up here. Notice, it's a voice like a trumpet. It's a voice like a trumpet. There's an open door in heaven, and it's saying, come up. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have we read that somewhere else in the scriptures before? This is, what I, this is where I believe the rapture of the church is going to take place. This is where the church age is finished. We saw that in chapters 2 and 3. And now John here is being literally physically taken up into heaven. We read it when we studied 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. Let me remind you of a couple passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We'll be caught up. That's what heaven literally means, to be taken up. That's what the word means, to be taken up. To be caught up with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. People will say, and I told you when I started, I'm teaching the book of Revelation from a pre-tribulation rapture perspective. This is where I think we see it, not only in Revelation, we see it in Corinthians and we see it in Thessalonians. But I think we see it in the Old Testament too. You say, wait a minute, Rob, I, don't, I never heard the word rapture in there. You talk about the rapture, I've heard the rapture, where does it exist? Well, the word for caught up in 1 Thessalonians is, uh, in the Greek it's harpazo, in the Latin it's rapturo where we get our word rapture from out of the latin language rapturo harpazo is the greek word the latin is rapturo it's where we get the word rapture from but let me put it to you another way before the lord judged sodom and gomorrah what did he do he removed those that were righteous now granted it was only lot and his wife and she turned back and became a pillar of salt but he removed those things those people that were righteous before he judged wait a minute rob wait a minute what about noah's ark what about Noah's Ark? Because they weren't removed. They went through the judgment of the earth, remember? Yeah, but Noah's great-great-grandfather was Enoch. And what does it say about Enoch? Enoch walked with God and was no more. So we see this picture of being removed from the earth. And what about Elijah? He walked with God and was no more. So this is not a, it's not a foreign concept when it comes to the church. When I look at the book of Revelation, I see it fulfilling or substantiating what the rest of the Bible says. And whenever you make a doctrine or whatever you decide you're going to stand on, you always have to look at the rest of Scripture. You don't want to just focus on one thing. So here's what I see taking place. At the voice I heard was like a trumpet. We read that in 1 Thessalonians. The trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air to meet with him. We see that taking place. Listen, John is a representation of the church. Of the church, the believers in Jesus Christ. Not Calvary Chapel, not the Methodist or the Presbyterian, the believers in Jesus Christ. That's what he's a picture of here. 
When the Lord is done with the church, it will be taken home to glory. He'll be, the bride of Christ will be taken to the bridegroom. The bridegroom will come receive the bride. But what follows is the tribulation period. What follows is the judgment. And we'll see that unfold as we step into chapter 6 and onward in the book of Revelation. Again, it's worth mentioning the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 and 3 represents the church age. And when that church age is completed, when that dispensation of grace has ended, the church, the bride of Christ, and it's not a specific church, understand that. It's believers. You cannot believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and still experience it. You don't have to understand the things of Scripture and be able to explain them and dictate them back to, to live by the promises of God. But I want, to, I want to just pause for a moment and I want you guys to know something. We have brothers and sisters that don't subscribe to a pre-tribulation rapture. And that's okay because they're still our brothers and sisters. They've studied and they've looked and there's many, many Bible scholars that have come and looked at this from different angles and have different points of view and they look at different things and they say, well, I'm not sure I'm buying into the pre-tribulation rapture. I think it's more of a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture. And I'll explain to you why I think it's a pre-tribulation rapture continuing as we go on. But here's what you tell them. You can believe what you want, but pray I'm right. And I'll explain it to you on the way up. Because otherwise, we're here on earth for what's coming in chapter 6. And that's not where I want to be. But you know what? If, that, if, if, we, if I am wrong in this and I don't believe that I am, then the Lord will provide and sustain us for everything we need through that as well. So, chapter 2 and 3 represents the church age. And when it's completed, the, the, church, the Lord will call the church up. Verse 2. Immediately... I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. John is immediately in the spirit. He's taken up. He's now in the throne room of God. And the first thing that he sees is what? It's a throne. It's a throne. He sees the throne. A throne is set in heaven in the throne room of God. The first thing he sees is the throne. It's not empty. It's occupied. You see, sometimes we forget that God is on the throne. We forget that he's still there. That We think, well, maybe he's confused. Maybe he doesn't see what's going on. Maybe he's not watching CNN or Fox News and doesn't realize the problems this country's having. No, he's still on the throne. He hasn't got up to take a bathroom break. He's still there. He's understanding. He's part of what's going on in not only this country, but everything else around the world. He's on the throne. And that throne, what does a throne represent? What do you think of a throne? What do you think of power? It's authority. It's, I mean, somebody on a throne has authority. Would you even dare to sit on a throne? I mean, it, 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 John realizes, I am in the throne room of God. Now, from here, John's going to kind of use the best words that he can to describe what he sees. Remember, for you to give a description of what you're looking at, you have to rely on the words that you know or the things that you've experienced, right? You can't certainly give a description based on something. You can't describe something you've never seen. Or if, and if you're describing something you've never seen, I'm limited to, to my own knowledge. I'm limited to my own words, my own language, and I'm limited to the things that I can compare it to. So when John is going to do this, he's going to give us a description of what the throne of God is like. And he says, one sat on the throne, he who sat there was like jasper 
and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. John describes the one sitting on the throne using brilliant stones or brilliant gems. Again, he's limited to what he knows. He knows these things. Jasper, it's clear like crystal, we're told. Probably like a diamond stone, Revelation 21 mentions. The sardius stone, it's red. It's bright red, like crimson. It's like a shining ruby, perhaps. And the emerald-colored rainbow, you guys know what a rainbow is, right? A rainbow, it's, it's got an emerald hue to it. So there's incredible picture of light around the throne of God. Now, you can go into these stones and what they mean, and, and, and scholars have spent years looking into this and making some comparisons, and what do they mean? I'm going to give you a few of them. What do these stones represent? Well, it could be a number of things. The jasper, it's said because of its clarity, refers to the purity of God. Could be true. The sardius, because it's red like blood, refers to the forgiveness of God and the blood that was shed on Calvary. And the emerald rainbow refers to the faithfulness of God. As he put the rainbow in the sky to remind the earth and us on the earth that he would never again destroy the earth with water. That's where the rainbow came from. It's in Genesis chapter 9. After God destroyed the earth with water, he put a rainbow in the clouds. It was a reminder to him and to us that the earth would never be destroyed again by water. All of mankind would never be destroyed by water again. Now, some people think the jasper and the sardius, they represent the empty tomb and the, and the sacrificial love poured out on Calvary by Jesus. And that's a possibility as well. Another interesting thing here, and we're going to go just a little bit deeper before we move on. In the Old Testament, before the priest would go into the tabernacle, he would have a breastplate. And on his breastplate were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The first stone, the first stone was the jasper stone. The last stone was the sardius stone. The first stone was the jasper. The last stone was the sardius. The first tribe was the tribe of Reuben. And the name Reuben means behold a son. The last tribe, represented by the Sardius stone, was the tribe of Benjamin. And the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. Picture of Christ, the son of God. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper in this, but I want to keep the overview perspective. John is brought into the throne room of heaven. He's looking at the throne of God. He sees God on the throne and now he's going to begin to tell us six things that, is, that are taking place around the throne. So he's called up, just as a review, he's called up, he sees the door open, he hears the trumpet or a voice like a trumpet sounding, John, come up here. He's brought up, he's immediately in the throne room of heaven, he sees God on the throne, he destri- describes him by the stones, Jasper and Sardius and, and the emerald rainbow and his beautiful picture of light and this incredible thing that he's, and now he's going to talk about what's going on around the throne what's going on near the throne what what else is taking place there and in verse 3 we read around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their head that's it Rob this is why I don't get the book of Revelation what are all these who are these people and all these pictures it just gets so confusing for me it's really not it's not I'm going to explain it to you it's going to make perfect sense 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones, who are they? It's a good question. Some people believe they're angels. They're they're cherubim, they're seraphim. 
I disagree with that. I don't think they're angels because of, because of how they're dressed. And we'll talk about that in a minute. What are they? They're the completed body of Christ. They represent us. They represent you and me, you and I, believers in Jesus Christ. Well, how do you get to that? Where do you, how, do you, how do you make that connection? Well, let me explain it to you. The number 24 can be found elsewhere in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 24 and 25, in chapter 24, we would see 24 divisions of priests representing all the priests. So there's thousands of priests, but they're divided into 24 divisions. 24 divisions represent a larger number, a corporate number that's represented by 24 divisions. In 1 Chronicles chapter 25, you'll find 24 divisions of singers. These 24 divisions of priests, these 24 divisions of singers are coming into the tabernacle to worship and prepare for the meeting of the Lord. Listen, this group of people, these 24 priests and 24 singers, they gather for service in the house of the Lord. They represent a bigger picture or a larger group. These 24 elders represent the church of the present age as well as the the saints who have died in the past collectively. It's a group of people, if you will. And here's how I'm going to put it together for you. Half of 24 is 12. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. How many apostles were there? 12 plus 12 is 24. So here's what I want you to understand. The 12 tribes of Israel represented here is the believers of the Old Testament. Abraham was righteousness because he believed God. The, 12, the other 12 represent the 12 apostles. Those represent us. Those represent the believers. That, that, that's us. That's a picture of the, of the church. But I want to show you something else. There's three specific things I want you to notice about this group of people. Number one, they're on thrones. Number two, they're wearing white. And number three, they're wearing crowns. So here's what I want you to notice. Back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, the believers were promised they would sit on thrones if they overcame. Back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, believers who overcome will be clothed in white robes. Back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, believers are told if they are faithful to the death, they will be given crowns. So you see how it matches up? You go, Rob, that sounds like it's the, it's the church. It is. This is the church being transported to heaven. We can tell, by the way, that they're dressed. That's what, when I say the rapture of the church, what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 4 fits the promises that he gave in chapters 2 and 3. It fits it perfectly. Well, I don't know. I'm still not convinced. I still don't think the church has gotten up there yet. Well, just turn real quickly over to chapter 5 in Revelation and look at verse 9 and 10. And I'm just going to summarize for you quickly. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's the same group of people we're talking about. And they sang a new song saying... You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Who's been redeemed to God by his blood? Us, the believers. Have the angels been redeemed to God? No, it's the believers. And have made us, oh, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. For that statement to be true, there's got to be more than 24 people represented. Right? Because we have more than 24 languages, we have more than 24 tribes, and more than 24 nations. So again, it speaks corporately of a group. You've been redeemed out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of, out of every nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 
Do you see the picture that John's seeing? When he sees, and go back to chapter 4, when he sees this massive collection, this group of people gathered around the throne to worship God, it's you and I. He's got a glimpse into the future, the things that will take place after these things. As he looks into the future, he sees this. As he enters the throne room of God, he sees what he describes as these 24 elders. And and it's us. It's all of the believers that are coming before the Lord. I can't wait to get there. Can you imagine what it would be like? That's only the first thing he describes. Number two. We read it in verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This is a preview of God's judgment that is to come. A display of God's presence, his power, and his future wrath. Remember on Mount Sinai, when the the Jews were wandering in in the wilderness, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, and the thundering and the lightning of God comes out. What do the people say? We're not going over there. We're afraid. We're not going near that. You go talk to God and tell him what, tell us what he says. And Moses became the go-between the people and God. He represented God to the people and he represented the people to God. So this is a perfect picture of, and, and three other times, I'm sorry, four other times in the book of Revelation, you're going to see lightnings and thunderings. And then next, what comes next will be judgment. It's a picture of God's wrath that's to come. It's a picture of his power. And then number three, we see seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. What are those seven lamps? It tells you they're the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God, we talked about that when we covered Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 3, verse 1. It's best understood, what, it's, well, what are they, Rob? Can you give it to us again? Because we don't remember. That's okay. The seven spirits of God is best understood as the complete work of the Holy Spirit. It's the fulfilled, it's the, seven always means completion in the Bible. It's completion. It's perfection. It's the complete and perfect work of the Holy Spirit. When it's completed, when it's perfected, now, it can also refer to Isaiah chapter 11 and 2 and the seven attributes or the seven characteristics of God there. And the seven lamps. What are the seven lamps? The seven lamps. When I think of seven lamps, I think of the tabernacle. I think of the menorah with seven golden lamps on top of it, casting light. Hebrews tells us the tabernacle was a model of heavenly things, right? It's a model. What we see in the tabernacle in, the, in you study the Old Testament, why don't you study the Old Testament? It tells you a lot about the New Testament. It tells you a lot about what heaven's going to be like. The tabernacle is a model of heavenly things. And there's a lamp in there, and it's casting light. And the lamp is filled with the oil. It's a representative of the Holy Spirit. Here before the throne of God, we see these seven lamps burning, representing of the, of the, of the completed work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And number four, before the throne, there was a sea-like glass like crystal, a sea like glass. You ever seen a glassy sea? How calm is that? I mean, not a, not a wave, just, just calm, peaceful, relaxing. Well, we could go really deep into that and say, well, what does it mean? What is it, you know, and, and guys and, and women have studied that over the years. They've come up with all kinds of answers. Some think that the sea represents the sea of humanity that is settled and at rest. Perfect rest, perfect peace, perfect settlement, perfect right before the Lord, there's this sea of glass. Other think it's an actual sea, but it's just a, it's a sea. What difference does it make? It's, we're just told that it's going to be wonderful and it's, and it's beautiful. And just the names, if the sea was like living in Florida, fishing and, and having a past of scuba diving. When you said the sea was like glass, I mean, it was just a beautiful day. If you've ever been out in a boat on the ocean, there, there's, there's, there's small waves and there's glass. 
And when it is glass, it is just, it's just gorgeous. You can, it's usually clear. You can see down, through the, down to the bottom. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Before the sea, like glass, and it, because it's the finest, it's like crystal. Now, the fifth thing we see. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and in the back, The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, the fourth living creature was, was, was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. And they're saying, not singing, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What is that? Listen, the overview perspective, they're angels. They're seraphim. They're angels. What does all the description mean? What's all the faces? You can spend hours diving into that. You can, you, you could, well, we're going to do a couple. Do we see this anywhere else in the Bible? We do. Ezekiel chapter 1. The same beings are described by Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 6, he describes them as well. So it's not just, this is not the only place. Ezekiel, Isaiah, they have the same, they, they see them as well. Some people think that these four beings are related to the four Gospels. And they go on, they make it, you know, how uh, Matthew presents uh, Jesus and how, how Mark presents Jesus, and they, and they relate it that way. Some people believe that uh, they represent in some form the 12 tribes of Israel because of, the face, because of the flags, the face like the eagle, the face like the man, the face like the ox. You don't, you, if you want to study that, get the overview first because you can, you can drive yourself crazy. And here's what you'll find when it comes to stuff like this. Everybody's got a different opinion. And everybody can make a connection. And oftentimes they're good connections. And you might look at them and say, all right, that, that's pretty cool. But all we need to know to keep the overview is the angels are before the Lord. The angels are before the Lord. The, the 24 elders on thrones, which is us, the angels are before the Lord. And look what they're saying. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. Perhaps it's they want to make the point clear. If, you, if I say something once, you go, okay, I got it. If I say it twice, you go, all right, now I really got it. If I say it three times, you go, okay, now I've got it. There's some emphasis with the third time. Holy, holy, holy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity's seen there. Why three times? Lord God Almighty. I love the name Almighty. I, you know what it means? It means literally you have your hands on everything. You're touching everything. You're on the throne. Your hands are part of everything. Nothing is, is, is outside of the grasp of your hands. Nothing who was and is and is to come. That's the best way that we can define something in the English language that says, always was, currently is, and always will be. This is what the angels are proclaiming about God. And men, smart men go, I don't believe in God. The angels do. Even Satan believes in God. The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. They're worshiping. They're praising God. 
Some people think they're singing and they could be. They're praising the Lord. Where do you stand when it comes to worshiping God? The angels are worshiping. The 24 elders are worshiping. But I always like to ask the question, where do we stand? Where do you stand personally when it comes to worshiping God? Did you worship God this morning during music, during worship? Or did you just kind of sing some songs? Yesterday morning when you got up and your alarm clock went off and it was, maybe it was turned to a Christian station. If it was, did you wake up worshiping? Or is it just music coming in one ear out the other? You see, the difference to the heart of worship is something that we need to develop in ourselves. And the way that we develop that is to get to know who God is. The more I get to know who God is, the more I want to worship. Because the more I realize how undone I am, the more I need to know him to worship him. If you can't worship, if you have trouble worshiping, you don't know who God is. And you don't know who yourself, you don't know yourself either. You're thinking something about yourself that might not be true. But when you get to know the Lord and you realize how majestic he is, how almighty he is, how amazing he is, you have no problem worshiping. You're not afraid to put your hands in the air to worship the, your king and your creator. You're not afraid. Well, I don't have to. I don't like to. Okay, okay. Don't want to touch any nerves. It's no big deal. But see, worship is not a symbol of this. Am I worshiping if I do this? I could be, but I might not be. He too, right? I could be doing it so everyone around me will think that I'm worshiping. You see, worship is a condition of my heart. It's a condition of your heart. So somebody could be standing like this with their hands in their pockets and their eyes closed or even their eyes open and they are just worshiping God and praising him. Maybe their lips aren't even moving. And somebody else could be standing like this, acting like they're just praising God and singing a song louder than everybody else. And you know what? They're not worshiping at all. They're just putting on a show for the person next to them. I would say let's be worshipers in our heart. If that looks like this for you, great. If it looks like this for you, fantastic. Be a worshiper in your heart. That's more important than what the person next to you thinks. Now, don't ever become distracting to the person next to you. Because sometimes in worship, people will get a little crazy. Well, how far can I go, Rob? Can I spin around? Can I dance in the aisles? Listen. If the person next to you is worshiping and they have to stop worshiping because what you're doing, that's not good. You know what I'm saying? If I start spinning and you're looking at, you're worshiping next to me, hey, you got your hands in your pockets and I'm over here doing this, you know, I'm spinning and you have to stop and look at me and go, what is he doing? Then you've interrupted my worship with the Lord. And that's where the line has to be drawn. Don't ever distract the person next to you. But at the same time, always feel free to express yourself to the Lord in, a, in, the, in the right way, in the proper way, in, in a true heartfelt way. Now, we've had it. And it's never happened here. But I've had it in, in another church that I was at where uh, we, had a, we had a lady. And, uh, and she was getting a little crazy. She was a little out there, you know, and sort of in the aisles dancing a little bit. And I had to pull her to the back and, and talk to her. And uh, here's, here's, here's how it goes. As, as you pull her to the back and you say, ma'am, I realize you're worshiping, but you're being a little distracting and you're keeping the people next to you from worshiping. There's going to be one of two responses. The correct response is, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. I didn't realize that. I, I was just caught up worshiping the Lord. But the more likely response is, don't get in my way of worship. How, you can't tell me how to worship. I can worship however I want. And you see the heart of both. The heart of the first one is, oh, I didn't mean to. I, I was really just worshiping. I'm sorry. And they go right back to where they left off. But the heart of the other one is, who are you to tell me? And you know that the second one, her, that person was wanting to put on a show. I got what I wanted. I want everybody to look at me. I want everybody to see what I was doing. That's not worship at all. But here in heaven, and by the way, if you don't like worshiping here, what makes you think you're going to like it there? Seriously. That's, this is, as a Christian, I want to go to heaven. What am I going to do there? You're going to worship, and you're going to rule, and you're going to reign. 
I don't know about the worship part. No, you're going to like it. It's going to be perfect worship. It'll be worthy worship. Because as you come into the presence of God, he will be worthy of your worship. And you won't be able to help but worship. There's nobody in heaven going to be going, I don't want to get too charismatic on them. They might think I'm Pentecostal or something. It's not going to happen. Instead, what we see here is corporate worship. Look at what's happening. When the angels worship and the angels sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, look what, the, look what we're doing. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. All who are represented by the 24 elders fall down and they cast their crowns to the Lord. Why? It's the ultimate picture of humility. Where did your crown come from? You got your crown from the deeds and the things that you did to the Lord, for the Lord here on this earth. As you have this crown in heaven, you're going to realize it's not mine, it's his. It belongs to him, and you cast it down before him. It's, it's, it's so simple. They're casting the crowns they received from the Lord they're casting them before the Lord, but they got them from him for the things that they did, for the things that we're doing today for the Lord is what your crown will be. Are you going to have a crown? Well, I don't know. Well, you better start working on it. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about doing things for the Lord. But I must make a point there. That word for crown, the Greek word is Stephanos. It means victor's crown. It means victor's crown. It's not a crown of royalty. There's a difference. It's someone who had run a race and completed the race and came in first place. It's a victor's crown. That's what we're going to receive. When you go to heaven as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to receive a victor's crown. Now you think, well, wait a minute, Rob. What if I have a small crown? And what if, what if you, since you're like a pastor and, and you, know, you might have like this big crown, am I going to feel bad because you have a big? No, 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 it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. I'm not going to be showing off my crown and you're not going to be showing off your crown and it doesn't work that way. You see what it is? It's, it's whatever we have belongs to him. So whatever you have belongs to him, whatever I have belongs to him and we're casting it down before him. Listen, the saints are taking what the Lord has given them. We're taking what we've been given by the Lord. We're casting it to his feet because we're acknowledging where it comes from. Who it belongs to. And we're humbly giving it back to him. That's all it is. It's the ultimate form of worship. What he gives me, I say, no, it really belongs to you. As the angels sing, I give it back to him. This, now, you know this happened in the Roman government? There's a, listen to this. Adam Clark is a commentator, great Bible scholar. He wrote in the 1700s. This is what he says. There is also an allusion to a practice in the Roman Empire. The emperor of Rome ruled over many lesser kings. And these kings were at times commanded to come before the emperor and lay their crowns down before him in homage. Then he would give them back as a demonstration that their crowns, their right to rule, their victory came from him. 
This is, an, this is an allusion to the custom of the prostrations in the east and to the homage of petty kings acknowledging the supremacy of the emperor. The Romans did this. The Roman emperor, when he would take over a city or take over a village or take something over and, and somebody was set up as king, he might leave you as king if he chose to. But then from time to time, he'd call you to his presence where you'd have to throw your crown down before him. Why? Because you're acknowledging that he's king over you. It's what's taking place in heaven. Or rather, rather, they're copying what's taking place in heaven here on earth. It's amazing how it all works together. But notice what we say. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In heaven, worship is taking place because he's worthy. On earth, it needs to be the same thing. We worship because God is worthy. Our worship doesn't make him worthy. Our worship doesn't affect him one bit. My acknowledgement, your acknowledgement, your worship of him, who does it benefit? You. It benefits you because you are putting things in the proper perspective. You are recognizing that he is on a throne greater than yours. Because the, ultimate of the, the, the opposite of that, not the ultimate, the opposite of that is I'm on the throne. And I want him to do what I want him to do. That's the worst place to be. Instead, we humble ourselves here on this earth. Say, Lord, we worship because you're worthy. Now, I've got to share something with you. The last half of verse 11, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. I'm kind of partial to the King James Version there, and I want to read it to you the way the King James writes it. It says, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The King James says that thou, or you, God, you created all things, and they're created for your pleasure, which means that I was created for God's pleasure. You were created for God's pleasure, which means that you were created purposefully. He had a plan in mind when he created you. There was a reason that you were created. He did, he, you, you are sitting here today because God has a plan for you. There's something very specific. We can know that we were created with a purpose in place for his good pleasure, for his good plans for us. Are you getting ready for the throne room? It's going to be pretty intense when we get there. It's going to be pretty intense to see it, to be there. And I wonder if I would have descri I'll describe it the same way John did. I wonder if you'll describe it the same way John did. You know, this is John's description of it for us. But what's amazing, while we can't go to the throne room just yet, physically, do you know that we can go to the throne room of God spiritually? The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a high priest, that's Jesus, who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Watch this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, right now, today, the throne of God is a throne of grace. 
Right now, the grace is available for anyone who call upon his name. Anyone who wants to be saved can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, and you shall be saved. It's available for anyone. But as we turn the pages in this book, as things come, the things that are coming next, the future things, heaven's going to close up. And it's not going to be open again until the end. doesn't mean people won't be saved during the tribulation. But we're not going to see heaven opened again until I think it's about Revelation 19. But right now, while we can't enjoy the throne room physically, you can enjoy the throne room spiritually. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the work of his Holy Spirit, we can come boldly into the throne of God and obtain the mercy and the grace in our time of need. Do you have a time of need? You know what it's like to be in a time of need? Do you know that you can go boldly before the throne room of God? You ever think, well, God doesn't really want to be bothered with me? I'm not really important enough. My need's not really that big. You know, I mean, he's a big God and he's got a lot of stuff to do. And I just, I just don't want to put him out. That's your mistake. Because God says, come. I want to help you. I want to speak to you. I want to minister to you. And he says, I want you to come boldly. I don't want you to come with your knees knocking. I want you to come before me. And when someone says, what are you doing going before God? You're not worthy. You're right, I'm not. But I have the blood of Jesus Christ covering me and he is worthy. That's it. What makes you worthy to go into the throne room of God? I'm not. But Jesus died for me and said I could, and I'm, now I'm doing what he said he can do. I can go to the Lord boldly in prayer. I can go to the Lord in prayer boldly before the Lord. I don't have to go to the Lord. The Lord, if, you know, I know I haven't been so good lately, and can you? No. If I'm covered in the blood of Christ, I can go boldly. This is good news for us. We don't have to just wonder, does the Lord want to talk to you? Yes, he wants to talk to you. Yes, he wants to minister to you. Yes, he's been tempted just like you. We've read it, although he didn't sin. He can relate to what you're dealing with. You don't have a God that can't relate. We just read it here and here. The Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He understands your weakness. He's been there. He can relate to it. Don't ever think God is so far in the heavens and so far high that he doesn't really know you. He does know you, and he's been through it, and he's struggled it just the same way you did, only he, only he has success in it. Do you want to get advice and counsel from somebody who made it or somebody who didn't? I want my advice from the Lord Jesus Christ because he did it. And he's got my best interest at heart. Today it's a throne of grace, but the judgment will follow as we, come, as we continue in our study in Revelation. Next week we'll be in heaven still. That chapter 5 is going to be still up in heaven taking place with a focus on Jesus. But come chapter 6, the church will be tucked away. I believe we've seen it clearly spelled out where the church will be removed from the earth. And we'll be watching this take place down below. Although our focus won't be on what's going on earth, it'll be on Jesus Christ. It'll be on God the Father. It'll be on the Holy Spirit as we are busy about his work up there just like we're busy about his work down here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this incredible picture, this picture of heaven, Lord, where we always wonder, what's heaven going to be like? What's what's going to take place? Am I going to sit on a cloud and strum a harp? Lord, but you've painted a different picture this morning. We see you at the focus. We see you at the center. We see you surrounded by all of your creation bowing down, worshiping. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. For your good pleasure, they exist and they were created. 
Lord, may we, would you help us? Would you help that to become important to us? May we not see heaven as a distant thing that we someday will get there, but may we see the work that's laid before us, the crowns, the things that we do for you here today count up there. May we value that. And Lord, may we too join in with the angels and the 24 elders in our worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.